every single day. These encounters leave us scratching our heads, retreating in fear, or pivoting to something that's perhaps more believable. Some of you in the room might find it unbelievable that winter will ever yield to spring this year. In the D.C. area, it is unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable, to believe that the Washington Capitals will ever make it out of the second round of the playoffs, or that our football team will ever make the playoffs. It is unbelievable to think that we can go a day in this town without a news scandal or bombshell hitting the news. It's also unthinkable to think that all of this, all of you sitting there, me sitting here, these fine people back here, are all present this morning because of a first century rabbi who overcame the power of sin and death. That all of this is the result of the empty tomb. It's unbelievable. Our journey in Eastertide continues this morning after Jesus appeared to two disciples on a road between Jerusalem and Emmaus. Cleopas, prior to our reading this morning, explained that many who had heard of the resurrection were still in disbelief, and that those in disbelief were the ones that were closest to Jesus throughout his ministry. The Emmaus story culminates with Jesus being made known to his disciples, to his closest friends, in the breaking of the bread. And I tell you that little story because the Gospel of Luke was not intended for us to read scene by scene. Each story was not meant to be isolated. The Gospel of Luke, along with the book of Acts, was intended to be read together as a long narrative, each story leading to the next, which explains why so many of the stories in Luke's Gospel in the book of Acts begin with something like, while they were talking about this, this referring to the previous encounter and then transitioning us to what was to happen next. The author is teeing up the next story by continuing the previous, leaving us this morning with disciples who were startled and terrified in the presence of the resurrected Christ. After hearing about a previous resurrection encounter a few verses earlier. This is Luke's second resurrection encounter. The second encounter with the risen Christ outside the empty tomb of Easter. And the disciples still do not believe their eyes. They think it's impossible. This resurrection account is entirely unbelievable. Especially after what they had just seen on Good Friday. And because of what they had seen on Good Friday, they forgot what Jesus had told them less than 24 hours earlier on Monday, Thursday. That the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed. They remembered that part, but they forgot the nugget at the end where Jesus says, on the third day be raised. Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen on Monday, Thursday, and still. The disciples, those who were in the room, those who were supposed to be paying careful attention throughout the ministry of Jesus, think their encounter is unbelievable. 
all of the resurrection encounters between Jesus and his disciples in one way or another begin with unbelief and fear. Yet, in the midst of their unbelief and fear, Jesus offers them peace over and over again because they just don't get it. Even before Jesus begins questioning his unbelieving disciples, why are you frightened? Why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? First, Jesus offers them peace and then moves to address the doubts that they have. We live in a world that is dominated by things that we can prove with science, statistics, and sometimes accurate news reporting. The resurrection, though, in a world that we live in, that's a hard sell. And it's not unfair to be critical of the resurrection today. After all, Jesus' closest friends, those who he told what was going to happen, those who encountered, encountered the physical body of the resurrected Christ, didn't believe him. If on first glance, the disciples of Jesus thought that the resurrected body was a ghost, shouldn't I, shouldn't you all, can't we be a little weary of the resurrection? If those who saw what the Gospel of John describes as the many other signs performed that aren't written in this book, if they saw those things and still had their doubts, shouldn't we this morning be given a little bit of leeway as we try to figure out if we're willing to sign on to the whole resurrection thing? These are legitimate questions to ask. And I know that they're legitimate questions to ask because you all are asking them of yourselves every Sunday when you sit in the pew. You ask them quietly to yourself, and every now and then, every now and then, a few of you will ask those questions not so quietly to people like me and Pastor Ed. On one hand, though, Especially if you have children, if you've ever mentored a child in church, if you've helped out with Sunday school or vacation Bible school, you know this very well. We want to live out the teachings of Jesus as best we can. And if we fail as adults, we pray to God that our children, the next generation of the church, that they'll get it better. They will do it better than we did. We think teachings like you shall love your God with all your heart, all your mind, your soul, your strength. We love that stuff. We love that stuff that Jesus says. Oh, and there's that other part of love your neighbor as yourself. We love to tell our kids that. We believe that deep down in our souls. And we don't question them. We center our lives around teachings like that. And when we mess up along the way, we depend on the grace and love and forgiveness extended to us by Christ. But somewhere between the empty tomb of Easter Sunday and the first Sunday of Advent, the hope-filled anticipation of the resurrection escapes us. And when that escapes us, when that hope is gone, we end up relegating the linchpin of Christian orthodoxy to being just a mere possibility. The unbelief that creeps up into the disciples a week, two weeks removed from the empty tomb during Eastertide for us today. We frown upon that. But for many of us, for many of us sitting here this morning or those not with us this morning, 
Those same doubts creep up into our lives before the lilies and the tulips of Easter morning become dormant for another year. A few weeks ago, a mentor of mine, he's a United Methodist pastor, and I would tell you his name, but it'll just blow his ego even more if I mention him. This mentor of mine suggested that Christian speech, the stained glass, churchy language that we use to describe our faith, he suggested that it falls apart when we insert unbelief about the physical resurrection of Christ and the physical resurrection that is promised to each of us. He said that because none of us here this morning would have ever considered paying attention to things like the Sermon on the Mount without the disciples' witness of the resurrection. He said that because without the resurrection, Christmas is just another day off from work, except we have to get up too early in the morning and we end up spending too much money. Without the resurrection, we have no reason to pay attention to anything, anything at all, between Matthew 1, verse 1, and Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. While we are willing to deliberate, and while we are able to deliberate at nauseam, things like salvation, inclusivity, and the placement of pyramids in the sanctuary, when it comes to the resurrection of the body, for many of us, crossing our fingers seems to be the proper liturgical movement, and we keep our doubts quietly to ourselves. The doubts that we experience are the same doubts felt by those who saw the many other signs performed that the gospel writers decided to leave out. Last Sunday, I shared a meditation with you all from my Thursday evening class on the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And this week, I have another classroom observation for you from Wesley Theological Seminary. And I share this with you for two reasons. First, I'm a big theology nerd, and I love learning. And if I learn it, I'm going to share it with as many people as I can. Second, in case my professor, Dr. Shively Smith, happens to catch the uh, podcast of this sermon, or is maybe sitting in the balcony this morning, I want her to know that I was paying attention in class on Thursday. So here it is. Here is the big theological shocker. Teaching about or preaching about the resurrection is hard. There it is. Anyone who has ever taught Sunday school, helped with vacation Bible school, or had a conversation with a four-year-old knows that this is a hard one to figure out. And worse, for some reason, we do this over and over again, week after week, making it easier for people like you to check out, to begin thinking about where we're going to go for brunch or where we're going to go grocery shopping. It makes it easier for people like me to sound like a broken record. The part of Christianity that is most necessary is at times the hardest to not only explain to outsiders, those who have never stepped foot in a church or those who have written off the church, but it's also sometimes even harder to explain to someone who's been sitting in the same seat for the last 40 years. We start thinking of ghosts instead of bodies creating for ourselves a tricky wicket, the same tricky wicket that the disciples experienced 2,000 years ago. 
Just like the disciples, Jesus extends peace to us. And he extends his hands and his feet. When that's not enough, when that's not proof enough, he gathers us together, sharing in the breaking of bread at the table or in a simple meal with family and friends. I told you last Sunday that I think Thomas, the doubting disciple, gets a bad rap. Because primarily we know Thomas because he's a doubter. He told Jesus, or he told his disciples, his disciple friends, that he needed to see the hole in Christ's hands. And he needed to put his hand in the side of Christ. He needed to touch the risen Christ's scars to believe that Jesus had walked out of the tomb. So what does Jesus do? What Jesus always does and will continue to do, Jesus offers Thomas exactly what he said he needed. But first, he extends Thomas peace. And in that peace, everything Thomas needed to know was confirmed. After thinking they had seen a ghost in front of them, Jesus offers the disciples the proof that they required, turning what was thought to be an unbelievable reality into existence. Christ offers peace. And after that peace, Jesus himself offered the bodily proof the disciples needed. He said, here are my hands, here are my feet, and let's eat a meal together. I don't know about you, I've never seen a ghost eat a meal. Peace be with you. That comes without prerequisite. There's no level of acceptance or Sunday school graduation you have to go through. There's no level of giving that you have to give to the church to experience and receive the peace of Christ. Our Wesleyan heritage states that this comes to us preveniently, meaning that it comes to us before we even believe in Christ himself. The early church recognized this. Paul himself recognized this, and so did the other authors of the epistles. Because while extending hard truths, things that may have seemed unbelievable 2,000 years ago, and things that were going to flip the way people lived their lives, the authors and Paul first offered the peace of Christ to their audience. Without the peace of Christ, the disciples 2,000 years ago may have never realized that Jesus himself was standing before them. Without the peace of Christ, on days when the resurrection or this whole church thing seems unbelievable, on those days when our doubts and fears convince us to keep those questions to ourselves or to simply cross our fingers and hope for the best. Our understanding of the resurrection, being able to see the risen Christ and not a ghost, that rises out of the peace extended to us by Christ himself. The good news is that even with our doubts and our fears, Christ is extending peace to all of us, and invites us to meet him at the table. Thanks be to God. Amen.